Before I read that, uh, let me tell you a little story about right after college, I met a guy and um, got to be pretty good friends with him, and uh, he was a neat guy, uh, one of the most interesting guys that I'd met, and uh, we had a circle of friends, and uh, pretty soon after I met him, he kind of joined our circle of friends, and um, and let just let me just explain how interesting he was. Um, he worked for the Department of Justice. We don't really know what he did, so we all just assumed he was some kind of spy, and that was pretty cool. Um, he drove a motorcycle, um, which automatically, I mean, that just makes you really cool. But then on top of that, in his spare time, his hobby was sword fighting. Um, and I mean, like, legitimate sword fighting. He, he had lots of swords, and he would um, do all manner of sword fighting. He would fencing, medieval sword fighting. He studied and knew all sorts of different uh, manner, uh, you know, sword fighting. He was a cool guy. Um, and so we, we got to know him, but then after a while, he just kind of seemed to drop off the face of the earth. We didn't know where he was. And so I caught up with him one day. I was like, what's going on? He said, well, uh, he, he just said, you know, on the weekends, as soon as I get out of work, um, I hit my motorcycle and I just go somewhere. Like, where do you go? He goes, wherever I want to go. He just gets and he, he goes. And he says, I don't come back until late on Sunday evening. So uh, I go to bed and I wake up and I go to work. Uh, he worked late most days, and so we just never saw him, and, and that was something we tried to catch up with him, try to find out what was going on with him, and we just never saw him, and it came obvious after a while that um, what he was doing was running from the mess of his life. Uh, his girlfriend had broken up with him, he was lonely, um, and he didn't want to deal with some of his major issues, and his way of dealing with it was to run away. I lost touch with him because you just can't be friends with someone who's never around, right? Well, in this passage today that we're going to see, we're going to see three groups of people that are running from Jesus. Jesus is a a person uh, that must be dealt with. But three different groups of people are going to be running from Jesus in this passage. Uh, And... And we're going to see how they try to deal with this person of Jesus. What's interesting is as, they, as they're running from him, they're right in front of him. And we're going to talk about what that even means uh, to run from Jesus and yet be near in proximity to him. So let me read this for us. Mark chapter 14 verses 43 through 52. Hear God's good and kind word this morning. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, "Have you come out against, uh, come out uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And let's ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and we thank you for uh, those that we see in here that are all running from Jesus. We pray that we would hear uh, this message and receive it, that our hearts uh, would be pricked with the gospel, uh, that we would be... Uh, that we would be reminded of our sin, even as we uh, don't want to deal with Jesus, uh, but as he deals with us. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so the first person that we see is the coward. Uh, the coward. And of course, this is Judas Iscariot. Uh, we've talked about Judas a couple times in this uh, sermon series up to this point, and um, Chapter 14, verse 10, you got to see really the, the nature of Judas. He has been hiding up to this point, but now uh, we see who he is. Um, in, cha- in verse 10, chapter 14, verse 10, we said, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. So Judas is the betrayer, and he is a coward. Um, what's interesting is that we've already seen that Jesus confronts Judas They actually told him in the midst of this intimate supper and this intimate celebration that what Judas would do, that he would betray Jesus. So so Jesus told Judas exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And Judas, having already met with the Pharisees and the leaders, knowing how it was all going to happen, Judas hears these things, and how does he respond? Well, he goes through with it. It's an amazing thing that happens. And you see the hardness of Judas's heart in this, that, that he knows that he's been found out, that you can't hide things from Jesus. And yet he looks Jesus in the face, hearing and receiving exactly what's going to happen, and he betrays Jesus even still. If I, if I were to pull you aside and tell you some specific sin that you were going to commit as soon as you left here today... Wouldn't you at least try to avoid it? I think most of us would. But here, um, the hardness of Judas's heart is evident where he hears what he's going to do and he betrays Jesus, committing what is possibly and probably the greatest sin that ever was uh, committed. But what makes Judas such a coward? Because that would seem like a brave thing to do, to go through with something after you've been found out. Judas doesn't seem to care about that. What makes him a coward? Well, it's simply this. He was hiding in plain sight. See, everything that Judas did was an attempt to hide his real nature, to hide who he really was. He knew about Jesus. He watched Jesus perform amazing miracles. He knew that they were magic tricks. He knew that they were not anything that any mortal human could do. He knew that we can't just raise somebody from the dead, and yet Jesus did that. He, he watched Jesus do things like turn water into wine, change the very elemental nature of, of things, molecules, and, and he, he watched him do that, and he knew Jesus' power. He also knew his incredible teaching, his otherworldly and supernatural teaching. He knew not just that, but Jesus' great love and the way that Jesus went after sinners and those that were despised by the world. Judas knew all of these things about Jesus. And what did he do? Well, he ran from him. But he ran from him by staying very close to Jesus. Instead of facing Jesus in his power, in his love, in his teaching, he ran from him. 
And essentially, he ran from him by wearing a mask. And I've said this before, and, and I just want to point it out quickly for you, that Judas's mask was a mask of religion. Um, Judas was one of the twelve, or one of the yeah, twelve that Jesus sent out to preach and proclaim the message. See, Judas was one of the ones that went out and actually performed miracles on behalf of Christ. Can you imagine that? That in the power of Jesus, Judas himself went out and maybe even raised people from the dead. All the while not believing that Jesus was who he said he was. That should be for church-going people, for you and me, terrifying. Because he wore the mask of religion. Everyone in his day who looked at Judas would have said, there is a fine man right there. Look at how much he dotes over his master Jesus. Look at how carefully he keeps the books to make sure that Jesus has something to eat and all of the disciples are, are, have something to eat and are taken care of. They would have said that he is a good man. Do you get that? They would have said Judas was a good man. And that good man betrayed the Son of God into the hands of sinners. What about you and me? And I, say, and I mean that when I say me, because this isn't just something that you need to watch out for. This is something I need to be careful of as well, maybe even more so than you. To wear the mask of the pastor and to say that everything is okay because I'm up here preaching this sermon. I know too many pastors that have rejected the faith and don't really believe the stuff they're saying. So this is for me as well. Um, are you using religiosity? Are you using church attendance and coming to church as a way to project to the outside world that you're okay? What are your th secret thoughts really about? Where does your mind go when you have time to let it wander? What is your heart really like? Is it bitter? Is it resentful? Is it envious? See, Mere religion, mere religious um, observance always leads away from Jesus. And for you and me, this is a great fear that we should have. That we are simply going through the motions of religion so that we don't have to deal with Jesus. Now I want to give you a diagnostic. We just did a negative diagnostic. If you see that root of bitterness in your heart because things aren't working out the way that you think they should... If you see your resentfulness towards others or envy, enviousness, then you can bet that you're not dealing with Jesus. But there's also a positive di diagnostic that you can do. If you see the negative things, that's one thing. But what about the positive things? Is your, is your life marked by joy? Is it marked by um, joy that can look past and through the suffering and the trials of this world? To the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, do you go out of your way to show kindness to others? Not just whenever they're standing in front of you as good polite southerners do. Whenever they intrude into your life because we all know how to do that. Do you find yourself going out of your way to be kind to other people? <clears throat> to, to, to sacrifice your own well-being? For the good of others. And then thirdly, I think here's a great diagnostic, maybe the most important one.
Do you repent of your sin? Do you see your sin and repent of it? Knowing that God is good and just and kind to forgive us. Not only that, do you not, not just repent to God? That's, that might be easy for us. Do you repent to others whenever you sin against them? Um, here's something that's incredibly true, that, that is really true. True, true, okay? All of us are sinners. All of us in this room have probably offended another person in this room. Maybe not today, but at some point we've done that. Can we repent to each other whenever we offend each other? Um, or do we put up a wall and say, no, I'm okay, I'm good, you're the one that is offended, you're the one that's wrong. Is your life marked by repentance? Those are, those are things that we can look out for, that we can see, that we can use to evaluate our own heart. So first of all, we see the coward, Judas. Secondly, we see the crowd, the crowd. Um, here, Judas is running in the in crowd. Um, it's every high schooler's dream to be part of the popular crowd, right? And here Judas seems to be doing that. But we need to look at the crowd that Judas is with. We're actually told here that Judas uh, is with a crowd. And then in John's gospel, uh, in chapter 18, we're told that Judas comes with the crowd and a cohort. Co- cohort. Um, and I need to explain what a cohort is. Um, a cohort is actually a... Um, uh, Technically speaking, it's a group of 600 to 200 Roman soldiers. So if you have in your mind that Judas is coming with a crowd of people and then also um, just a few soldiers, no, you need to get that out of your head. There's a good chance that Judas shows up with 200 battle-hardened Roman soldiers decked out in all of their, um, their, their armor and everything ready because they're expecting a fight. So here is Judas, they, they intrude into this quiet and peaceful garden, and the crowds are there with them. Now, understand this, all through the Gospel of Mark, uh, all through it, um, the crowds have been following Jesus and lauding Jesus and wanting Jesus to do miracles and all of these things, and it's looked like the crowd has been with Jesus, but now there's a crowd that is against Jesus. And what have they come there to do? Well, they've come to show strength, and power. Um, Dave Ramsey is, uh, tells a, a story about his life prior to um, getting, getting out of all of the debt and everything that he was in. He was a um, pretty successful, um, uh, I think he dealt in real estate and he was successful. But what he would tell you is that, that he was successful at was getting people to give him money. He didn't have any money on his own. And so he would go to banks and convince them to give him money. And he would use that and run his own kind of private private Ponzi scheme to keep things going and to keep appearances up. And he said one day uh, he was completely broke. He actually owed hundreds of thousands of dollars personally. He didn't know what to do. He put on his nicest suit he made sure that he was clean-shaven and looked good. He drove his green Jaguar up to the bank and, and made sure that his green Jaguar was parked right outside uh, the window of the bank president. He marched in. He looked like he had everything together, and he said, you're going to give me money, and guess what? They gave him money. And all of that led to even more uh, down of his downfall whenever he was bankrupt. And Dave Ramsey's point in that is don't trust people if they look like they have things all together. Um, well, this crowd is trying to show strength and power, and like they have everything together, like they're going to take Jesus. And they're actually running from Jesus by trying to scare him with their strength and their power. 
Uh, once again, John's gospel records for us what happens in this interchange. They come and, and they ask, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And you know what he says? He says, Yahweh, I am. That's what Yahweh means is I am. And whenever Jesus speaks, the words come out of his mouth. The 200 Roman soldiers and all of the crowds and everyone with him fall down backwards. Just by the word of his mouth, they fall down. They cannot stand before Yahweh. Um, and the proof of that is it doesn't matter how much power the world says they have or, or how much strength they try to show. They actually have no power and no strength. Now, here's the point in this. Here's the point in understanding about the crowds and their desire to show power and strength. Um, Jesus is a threat to the world's power and strength because Jesus, uh, Jesus actually demands exclusively that we worship him. We give him the honor and that nothing else in this world can receive honor and glory besides him. Jesus is a threat to the crowd's power. Um, Jesus made exclusive claims about himself. He said that he was God. He said that because he's God, he owns the world and everyone must bow down and worship him. That he actually is the one with the power. And because he has the power, he demands obedience to himself. So the crowds then and the crowds today hate Jesus for that reason. Because Christianity makes exclusive claims. You cannot worship Jesus in anything else. You cannot worship Jesus and have things your way. You cannot say, I worship Jesus and yet I demand my own destiny. No, it is, I worship Jesus and there's no other God that is put on the shelf with him. I don't have the right to, to investigate him, but he indeed investigates me. He looks into my soul and tells me who I am and what I am like. And whenever he says that and tells me what I'm like, my responsibility is to be obedient and listen to him. The crowds then and today hate Jesus. And because we as his followers proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, they hate us as well. That's why they come with swords and with clubs. And that's why all over the world today there are Christians that are being persecuted with swords and with clubs because they try to beat Jesus out of them and scare him away. But Jesus isn't phased by their clubs and their swords. Verse 47, But one of those stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Um, in another gospel, we're told that Peter is the one that did this. Peter, who was telling Mark to write these things down. And we're told that uh, in another gospel that they're, uh, right before they go out to the garden, the, the disciples say, look, Jesus, we have two swords with us. Basically saying, we're ready to go. We have our swords. And Jesus kind of says, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about these things. And, of course, um, we're told that whenever this happened, that, uh, that Jesus actually took that servant's ear and put it back on his head, performing a miracle, showing who he really is. Jesus isn't phased by their power or strength because they don't have any. And then, once again, it's amazing, he points them to the place of real power. He points them to scriptures. Verse 48, And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us as, rob or against as, 
as a soldier with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He points them back to the scriptures. That's a good reminder for us. When we're faced with the crowds and the power and the strength and the persecution of the crowds, we need to point them back to the scriptures and let the scriptures speak for themselves. Now, you probably, I'm assuming, are not part of the crowd. So these things are probably not a danger for you. But guess what? You and I live among the crowds of people, among the people that are out there that are denying the existence of Jesus, that are denying the the, the Godhead, that are denying the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. You live among them. What's your attitude toward them? Are you fearful of them? Or do you see the opportunity to spread the gospel among them? Let me ask you this. What is your spirit like in a, in a world of chaos as the crowds are, are drumming up all of the chaos and, and as you watch Fox News or CNN or whatever your, your preferred method of receiving news is, what is your spirit like? Do you recognize that you have a God that faced what the world offers and is not phased by it? Can you also have a quiet spirit in the midst of the turmoil of the world? Well, you can, actually. You can be just like Jesus in this respect, but the only way for you and I to do it is to see that he is the one with the power, that he is the one that controls it all, that everything is in his hands. And nothing in this world happens apart from his sovereign plan, even the betrayal of Judas. Finally, we see a third group of people, and they're the Christians. Do you see that? Have you caught that? There are Christians, faithful believers in Jesus Christ, who are also running from Jesus. They are true followers. There's 11 disciples that are there. What happens in verse 50? And they all fled from Jesus. In, the, in Christ's moment of greatest, the moment of his greatest need for them to stick by, by him, they all ran from him. They all left. And then there's this interesting interchange here in verse 51 and 52. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away. Now, we don't know exactly who that is. We don't know because um, he doesn't tell, Mark doesn't say who this is, but most commentators, and I agree with them, think that this is Mark himself. This is John Mark, who was one of the early disciples of Jesus, not one of the 11, not one of the 11 or 12 here, but one of the early ones who followed closely to Jesus, who was there with him on this night, who also watched him be arrested. And when it came time for him to make a stand for Christ and his linen garb was, was grabbed, he ran away and was wanted to be seen as shamefully naked instead of being with Christ. The writer of the gospel, one of the men who was instrumental in the spread of Christianity after Christ's ascension, you can read about it in the, in the gospel of Acts, ran away from Jesus naked. And I just think it's interesting here that Mark probably, and I can just imagine this, as Peter's recounting these things, he said, Peter, can I share my story of running from Jesus as well? To say, this is who I really am. 
And doesn't that make the gospel that much greater to say that, that he ran from Jesus? And guess what? As we're going to see, Jesus ran to chase Mark down. Um, there is a common literary theme that shows up over and over and over in our uh, greatest books and all of our movies. And this literary theme that shows up is a theme of redemption. Uh, and the world has a particular way of talking about the way that people are redeemed. Um, you can't get away of the need for redemption, but the way the world presents it's an in- interesting one. And I want to point you to Disney's one of Disney's latest movies, Moana. Okay, now, parents of young children, you know this movie. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, Ryan, you need to see it. Okay. I, I mean, this is a movie that I've watched at least with a three-year-old, um, you know, I hundred times, I would say by now, I've seen it. It's just on repeat. And here's the story very quickly. Um, Maui destroyed the world. He needs to save the world with Moana. Um, Moana has to replace the heart of Tefiti uh, and because Maui stole it. And with Maui's help, they're going to save the world. The details aren't that important here. Moana's going to do it. Maui's going to be right there with her. Um, and they're going to go do it. And at the last moment, Maui runs from Moana. He can't do it. He runs. He runs away. He deserts Moana. At the point of her greatest need, he leaves. But then that's not the end of the story because as Moana is going to face the great lava monster, okay, uh, as she's going to face the great lava monster, Maui comes back. And he totally redeems himself. It's this wonderful moment. You go, yeah, Maui's back. And they're going to win, and they do. They all end up winning. And that's the way that the world says that you and I can be redeemed. We might be deserters at heart, but as long as we come back, it's going to be okay. There is no gospel or good news in that story. Because the reality is, is that you and I are deserters that will leave our Savior at the point of his greatest need. And we will not come back to him. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news is that we left and he came back for us. We are deserters of Jesus Christ. His disciples were deserters of Jesus Christ. And in in war, do you know what you deserve if you desert? If you leave, you deserve death. But instead of these deserters receiving death, The one that did not leave got the death for them. I want you to understand something that these Christians, these 11 disciples and John Mark himself, were all cowards just like Judas. What's the difference? The difference is that Jesus Christ took the death that they deserved for them. The one that did not deserve life or did not deserve death, got death. The ones that deserve death got life. That's the difference. Where do you see that? Here's the diagnostic for yourself. Here's how you can evaluate your heart. Have you received the finished work of Christ that he accomplished for you on the cross? Or do you still believe that somehow or another you have run to Christ, that you have received something that you ultimately deserve? Do you have the courage to admit That you're a sinner deserving only God's wrath and punishment. But by the finished work of Christ, you get his salvation. Um, 
We were going to sing this, but we're not going to. But in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, at the very end, the writer there says, uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But then he doesn't end there because the reality is that Christians are prone to wander. We are prone to leave and to run from Jesus. But our prayer is that, the very end of that, that he would take and seal our hearts. Seal it so that we would not wander, so that we would not leave him. If you're a Christian today, then I want you to remember the gospel of his grace, that he came after deserters like you and me. If you're not a Christian, today's your day to come to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and we pray that you would use it as we leave here today, that we would be reminded once again of what you have done for us, or maybe for the first time that we would have seen the grace that you have given us through your Son. Pray, Father, that we would not be cowards, that we would not be part of the crowd, but that we would be Christians who truly believe, but that only happens if you give us that belief, that if you work that miracle of faith inside of us. So we pray that, not for our sakes, but for yours and for your glory. In Christ's name.